Exodus 19, starting at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to the God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Oh, well, good morning and uh, thanks for being here on a long, long weekend. I uh, appreciate you being here this morning. Let's pray and then we'll look into the Bible. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you that uh, your word is real, it is true. Uh, you reveal yourself through it to us. We pray that as we come to it this morning, uh, you would help us to uh, be still before it, uh, listen to your voice carefully, and you would reveal more of yourself to us. As we look at the story of the Exodus, uh, this book of, the Ex- of Exodus, you would help us to engage our minds, to think hard, um, to, to, be able to, to help us to pay attention, to listen, listen well, and put all distractions out of our minds. We want to pray, Father, that we would see who you are, your goodness, and really our glory in Jesus this morning. Lord, please bless our time we ask. Amen. Now, I love, uh, I love buying new things. I enjoy uh, new clothes, new shoes, new gadgets, new anything. I am into it. Uh, in saying that, I'm a cautious buyer, though. Um, I research what I want. I think hard about what, I, what I'm going to get. I go to different shops, look at online reviews, uh, and then I purchase it. Uh, it's only because I hate being ripped off. I hate being ripped off. Or, you know, when you buy something and then you go and realize that there's a better product out there that's cheaper and you just hate on yourself. Well, I do anyway. That's, that's what I do. And um, because really m- m- the majority of the time we want to we buy a product that does what we want it to do. So we purchase uh, something for a purpose. We purchase for a purpose. Like if you are invited to a wedding and you need a new suit or a new dress or new shoes, whatever it is, you go out to, uh, to a shop to try and find that item that you want for the purpose of you getting dressed up to go to a wedding, whatever it is. Or if your phone breaks, you buy a new phone, and so that's the idea. And we hate, or at least I hate, when I purchase something and it does not do what I want it to do. A number of years ago, um, when I was in ministry, I had gone from youth ministry to young adults ministry. And so looking after teenagers and, and discipling them, I would give weekly youth group talks about 10 to 15 minutes or so. But jumping across the adults' talks, I was giving 30 to 35 minute sermons writing those. And uh, now writing is not my strong point, either is typing. And so I have the whole one finger type thing going on for a while there. And uh, this guy was getting very tired. And, um, <clears throat> and so I would need to thought, I need to speed this up. I can't take so long doing this and typing. I need to, if I'm writing longer sermons, I've got to get quicker. And so a friend of mine suggested to me dictation software. 
And so I thought, amazing. Uh, that sounds really cool. And so I thought, you know, I could just speak my sermons and then I would type it. I could write like seven sermons a week. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to be so far ahead. It's going to be the best. And so I researched it and I saw the dragon dictation was the best. Spent over $100 on it, set it up, gave it a shot. And it was hopeless. It was so bad. It was so bad. It made my sermon writing even slower. I spoke way too fast for it. It did not know what I was saying. I spent more time hitting the delete button than anything. Uh, I would say something like, you know, I'd say in the microphone, you know, well, good evening and welcome. My name is Gav. It's great to have you here. And up on the screen, it would say like, good even. Name is have. Great, you are here. I'm like, no, like, don't do that. And they just... Delete, 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 delete. And for every sentence I said something, I was just simply hitting the delete button. It was a disaster. It did not do what I wanted it to do. It made me more annoyed that I'd purchased this for a purpose and it just didn't work at all. Uh, today, as I said, as Rob said, we're continuing on in the story of the Bible. And today we come uh, down to here, down to this man, Moses. I'm sure you would have heard a lot about Prince of Egypt video, all that sort of stuff. We look at Moses. And we really see behind this story is this idea of God redeeming and purchasing a people for himself, really to make them his own. And they become the people of God. And we see that God uh, purchases them and then gives them a purpose for being his people. He rescues them and then puts them under his good rule, then to reflect him to the world as his people on earth. And today, as we look at Moses, as we think about how to apply what we see here today, we're going to look at this question of how do we respond to God's love? How do we live in light of God's love and his grace? As his followers, what does he call us to do or be? And does God really care how you live as a follower? Does he really care on how you use your time, your thoughts, whatever you do? Does he, like, does he care if you come to church or not? Does he care if you go to a small group in the week, middle of the week? Does he, does he care, does, he, does it matter if you love others or not? Does it matter if you sleep with someone who's not your spouse? And do these things make us followers of Jesus? Do they disqualify us from being followers of Jesus? Should other people know that you're a follower of Jesus? Should you feel guilty if they don't? Should you, should you worry that God will stop loving you if you don't do what he says? Do we often think this idea of, oh, God's just disappointed in me all the time. He's like this disappointed father that I have. You know, many, many of us feel so guilty when we sin and fall short of what God calls us to do and to be. But the question is, should we? Should we feel guilty? I know a lot of us live with this guilt, but, but is it right? Is it misplaced guilt? Well, these are some of the questions we're going to ponder today and see what God has to say to us through his word. So let's jump into it. Now, as Rob said, as we've been saying, we're looking at this story, this one cohesive story of the Bible. And remember last week where we left it. If you hear last week, we looked at this guy called Abraham. And we saw that Abraham was given promises, was given a covenant. God was faithful to humanity even when they were not. And this is really the beginning of God's rescue plan. Genesis 12 we saw last week was this turning point where God had intervened and to, to decided to rescue his people and really trying to restore his good purposes back for creation back here in the garden, being God's people under, in God's place under God's rule. And so we left last week at the end of the book of Genesis, and we saw Jacob and his family all happy in Egypt. And that was the end of the book of, of Genesis. And by the start of uh, this week, so today we hit the book of Exodus, 
And by the start of the book of Exodus, between these two books, 400 years has passed, and Jacob's family is now called Israel. Really, Abraham's family. So we've gone through the line. Abraham's family, now Jacob's family, uh, God's chosen people, they've grown huge, and they're in Egypt. And then they're living in a land that is not their own. And the local ruler, Pharaoh, once who knew Jacob and appreciated him, the new Pharaoh did not appreciate him and did not know him. And all he saw was these people who were not his own growing bigger and bigger and bigger. He felt threatened by them. And uh, he was worried they might rebel and rise up against him. And so he decides to make them slaves. So they're slaves in the land of Egypt, God's people. And as we heard, Pharaoh was bad, one of the worst and most evil characters in the whole Bible. The way he treats people is, is horrible. Uh, killing people is like, you know, almost like a Hitler, Hitler or a Stalin. And he went through and systematically killed. He forcefully removed, removed the Israelite boys from their home. Can you imagine this? Going to home to home, tearing away crying babies from families that are just distraught, and then throwing them into the river and drowning all of them. It's horrendous. He's an evil, evil person. It's a sin at its worst. And Genesis 3 is playing out here. And these Israelites, these God's people, Abraham's family, they're trapped. They're enslaved and they're wondering this question of where is God? Where are these promises, this covenant that he made with us, his people, where is God? And we read in Exodus 2, 23, 25, it says, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. They cried for rescue from slavery, came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So God continues the rescue plan, and he starts now with a man named Moses. And we saw in the video, God saves Moses miraculously. It's a really cool story of how it actually works out that um, Moses should have been killed. He should have been thrown into the river. But he wasn't. His mum decided to put him into, in a basket and send him down the river where he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, he's eventually rescued, and then, uh, then Moses' mum is allowed to raise him. And then he goes back into the palace where he grows up um, uh, as as royalty. But one day, though, when Moses is older, as you know the story, he is out out walking around. He sees one of his own people, the Israelites, being treated poorly by an Egyptian. He steps in and he kills the Egyptian doing that. Moses fears for his life and then he runs and says, I will never return to Egypt ever again. And so he's out in the desert. And uh, this is where he meets God. It's the famous account of the burning bush. And Moses says to God, he comes to this bush and, and, and the burning bush, or God speaks to him. And Moses says, this burning bush says to God, who are you? Interesting question to ask God, who are you? And you get this really famous account in Exodus 3.14, where, where God actually says, I am who I am funny way to answer it. Who are you? He says, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, is his answer. And really, if you, if you know any, uh, any, any of uh, uh, people who have called God Yahweh before, this is the way, where the name Yahweh comes from. Uh, in Hebrew, for the word for I am sounds like Yahweh. And this is what God calls himself, I am that I am. And really he's saying, is that really God is saying here, no name can encapsulate my character. It's like he's saying, To Moses, if you want to know who I am, watch the way I act in history and how I relate to my people. That's who I am. But he's describing himself. So God meets Moses and says to Moses, Now I want you, Moses, I'm God, I want you to go back to Egypt. I've heard the cry of my people, 
and I'm telling you to go and rescue them. And he says, I'll be with you, and I will show my power through you to free my people. And Moses reluctantly goes with God's power to rescue God's people. And so Moses goes, and he meets face-to-face with the Pharaoh, and says to the Pharaoh, let God's people go, and Pharaoh just laughs in his face. And then Pharaoh says, because you've done this, Moses, I'm going to double the workload of your people. And Moses comes disheartened, and he says to God, come on, God, what's going on? This is not working. Your plan is not working, God. But God replies in Exodus 6 and says to, uh, says to Moses, I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Trust me, I'll be faithful to it. And God repeats his promise to rescue. Then as we heard in the video, um, this is a time where we hear the first time the, the word redemption is used. And this idea of redemption is this idea of God saying, I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to free them from slavery. Redemption is being bought back, buying some, buying a slave their freedom. And God says, I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to free them from slavery. And God sets about his rescue. He sends the ten plagues that just absolutely ravage Egypt. And the tenth plague is the worst. If you know this, it's the angel of death. And God is going to kill the firstborn sons across Egypt in response to what Pharaoh has done in killing the babies. But God graciously gives his people a way out, a way of saving the firstborn of their, of their family. And God lays out in quite long detail in chapters 12 and 13 of Exodus really how they to do this, how they're to escape this judgment. And it's part of their redemption from slavery. And basically they had to take a lamb, get a lamb, they had to slaughter the lamb, they had to kill it, and then paint the blood of that lamb on their doorpost of their, of their place, or on their frame of their door. And Moses tells these people this in Exodus 12, 23. He says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. So the angel of death will come and going to take the life of every firstborn child, but it will pass over the door of, of a house when the, where the blood, is the lamb's blood, is painted over it. Judgment will pass over it. Death will pass over it. And this is where the celebration of the Jewish people comes the idea of Passover. This is the Passover festival. It comes from this, this moment, this event. Celebrating the idea of God intervening, God bringing justice on human evil and showing mercy by providing a substitute. Story continues. The last plague, angel of death comes. Pharaoh says, I've had enough. I've had enough. You can go. Your people can go. You can get out of here. They leave, but Pharaoh changes his mind and he's full of rage And he gets his army, he says, go and chase down those Israelites and slaughter every single one of them. Leave none alive. Hunt them down and kill them. The Israelites realize they're being chased, but they eventually get cornered because in front of them is the Red Sea and behind them is this army that wants to tear them to shreds and they're stuck and they're trapped and they're powerless to save themselves. And then we read in Exodus 14, if you read Exodus 14, they start freaking out and getting really upset and getting angry at Moses and angry at God, saying, we should have stayed in, we should have stayed in Egypt, um, slavery wasn't that bad, we should have stayed there, thinking they're going to lose their lives. And then Moses responds to the lack of faith and grumbling with Exodus 14, 13 and 14, it says this, Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you, for you, for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you, you have only to be silent. That is such a cool passage. God, by his grace, will rescue and redeem 
his people from slavery. And what does he say for them to do? He says just to be, shh, stop. Just be quiet. Do nothing. Do nothing. Just be silent. So what happens? God is faithful. He again intervenes. He redeems and saves his people. And you know the story. He parts the Red Sea. Moses gets his staff and he parts the Red Sea. And God provides a passageway for his, his people to be rescued through the middle of the sea. Miraculously. The Egyptians try to go through as well. What does God do? He lets the sea come back again and he wipes them all out. And Egyptians all get killed and drown. And God has rescued and redeemed his people and set them free to be his own special people just as he has promised. And that's the story, the Exodus and the Passover. And at the end, of, uh, at the end of last year, I think I had seven or eight weddings I went to in like 10 weeks. Almost every weekend I was at a wedding. And uh, it was wedding season. I think I married, I was involved in the ceremony of most of those couples. But when you, have, when you do a wedding, it's pretty cool because you get a front row seat to a very special day. Um, yeah, pretty much as the, as, the, as the pastor running it, I run the ceremony, I run the, I'm almost like an event manager, I run, the, I run that day. And I get to see the groom there with his groomsmen at the very beginning, waiting, all really agitated and nervous, trying to welcome everyone as they come in. And you can see that they're just really hating saying hi to people because they want the day just to start. And they're freaking out. And you see them all get really sweaty and nervous. And it's funny to watch them. And then the, um, and then the bride arrives. And you can see the car pull up. And the, and, the, and the groom gets super nervous at that point. And I often go outside and meet the bride uh, and all the bridesmaids outside. And normally uh, the bride jumps out of the car. And they are honestly like a deer in headlights. Like, they're just like, oh my gosh, what is happening? This is like almost in shock as they jump out of this car. Nervous, being up since 5 a.m., getting their hair done, getting their makeup done. Emotional parents are crying, and uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting sight to see. Then I go in, and the day begins, and uh, the bridesmaid come down the aisles, and you see the poor groom get more and more nervous, and everyone's looking at him to see if he's going to cry or not, and he starts sweating more, and... Uh, the bride appears at the start of the aisle. She's emotional. Everyone gets emotional. The parents are emotional. And it's a pretty special moment. It's, quite a, it's, a, it's a big moment in the life of, of a couple. Pretty amazing. It's a special day. But what's even more amazing about weddings and marriages is they're actually not just about the couple. It's actually, uh, it's actually marriage, as you, if you know the Bible at all, marriage actually points to a far greater and bigger and better reality. Marriage is actually an illustration of Jesus and the church. So on that day, what you're experiencing is, you're experiencing this celebration of a couple's come together. It's actually pointing to a greater wedding or marriage, which is Jesus and his love for the church. That's the main point of marriage. Marriage is, is supposed to point outside of itself to a far greater grander reality to the wedding of Jesus and his people. That's what you experience on this day, pointing to something else. As we've been walking through this series, this whole story of the Bible, what we've been saying is this whole story of the Bible is fulfilled and is pointing to a far greater reality. It's pointing towards Jesus. We just look at the story of Moses, right? We just look at the story of the plagues, really briefly the plagues, the exodus, the Passover, God's redemption of his people, all really amazing stories in and of themselves. But if you have the whole story of the Bible in mind, you see the story of Moses is pointing towards Jesus. Jesus is the greater and better Moses. Jesus is the greater and, and, and better Passover. Jesus is the greater and better Exodus. I just want to show you this for a second. That's what we're trying to do in this series. 
Think about the angel of death for a minute with me. The Israelites are saved by substitution. Salvation by substitution, really. Rescue by substitution. See, the Israelites, too, were, were sinful. Uh, but instead of them dying, another dies in their place. A lamb dies in their place. And that lamb's blood is to cover them. It covers their place and judgment passes over them. The Passover. Substitution. This lamb takes a place for them. And the cool thing is, in John 1.24, John the Baptist, the first thing John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus is the true and better lamb. The Lamb of God who comes and dies on the cross to take away humanity's sin. He's humanity's Passover lamb. So he is. God's righteous anger and judgment against sin is passed over those who trust in Jesus. He is our substitute. You know, it's cool. It's no coincidence. If you look at the Bible story, the account of Jesus' death, what the writers will say is, will record for us that when Jesus died, the Jews were actually celebrating the Passover festival. That's no coincidence. As the Passover festival was taking place, reminding us that Jesus is the true Passover lamb, pointing back to this moment. Jesus fulfilling this moment. Israel's deliverance from Egypt points forward to a greater deliverance that Jesus achieved on the cross for us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Just like the Israelites were enslaved... We too are enslaved, not to a leader, but we're slaves to sin and to death and to Satan with no way out to rescue ourselves. But just like God defeated Pharaoh, Jesus defeated sin for us to redeem us, to buy us back from the slavery of sin, to free us to be the people of God. He's purchased us to be free. Colossians 2.15 says this, he, Jesus, disarmed the rules and authorities, the evil spiritual forces, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Just like God redeemed and saved and purchased Israel for himself through Christ, he has purchased uh, us for himself, rescued us and made us his own people. This is how the story of Moses points towards Jesus. This is what it's about. But as I was saying, uh, the story continues. And God purchases his people, Israel, for himself. But he purchases them for a purpose. Uh, they to be his people, to live out being his people on earth. So God rescues them. And then he takes them to a place called Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is where God first met uh, Moses at the burning bush. And then we, we read this, God saying this to the people at Mount Sinai, 15.26 in Exodus. He says, if you diligently listen to, to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his, all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I'm the Lord your, your healer. So God has rescued them. They're already his people. And now he's saying, now I want to show you the purpose for which I rescued you for, for being my people. He says, now I expect you to live as my people under my good rule. So they're now God's people to live under God's rule, as was the intention in the garden. And he's calling them to live under his good rule. They've been rescued, but they're not like they can do what they want now. They've been rescued for a purpose, to live under his, purpose, to live under his way and to show everyone around, the, uh, show the world what God is like. And so God gives 
his people hear commandments. I'm sure you would have heard of the Ten Commandments before. That's what we're up to. We're down to here now. Uh, the Ten Commandments. And so God is going to give them these rules to follow, to be his people, to live out being his people. And they're not to, to burden them, but they're to, to help them to flourish as his people on earth, living under his good rule. So what do they do? Well, let's look at chapter 16 of Exodus, uh, verses 2 and 3. It says this. So just, they've just come out of, uh, out of being rescued, and they say this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, would, uh, uh, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in, in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the, the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, we, we, uh, with hunger. So they're already grumbling. They've just been rescued miraculously from being tortured by, by Pharaoh. They've been miraculously saved through the Red Sea. God has cared for them and redeemed them as his own. And already straight away they say, this sucks, let's go back to Egypt. Straight away. Grumbling and grumbling at Moses and at God. And at the heart of it, really, I think if you look at this, they're doubting God's goodness. They're saying, God, are you really good? Do you really care for us? If you did, you'd give us this stuff. That's what they're saying here. But God continues to show kindness to his people. Let me read in is, that the Israelites are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai and God comes and he decides actually to come down and dwell with them. And we read this in the story of Exodus 19. God's presence is there from this form of this violent storm cloud. Now remember this idea of presence again. So back in the garden, the, uh, uh, when God created his, uh, his humanity, he was there, he dwelt among them and his presence was a huge thing. He was with his people. They could access him whenever they wanted to. Sin comes in. That's now cut off. We can no longer approach God. Access denied. Can't go to his presence anymore. And it's been cut off. And so now uh, the people, uh, God is going to come down to the mountain. And he's going to now dwell among them again to offer them access to him. And he's inviting uh, Israel into a unique and close relationship with him. Where they can access his presence in some way. And God is going to do this by inviting them to, into a new agreement, a new covenant, almost. And I want to show you this. Exodus 19.4 that Rob read for us. that says this. Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be, be, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you will speak to the people of Israel. So God's saying, you're my people. I've saved you. And up until now, he's asked them to do nothing. But right now, he's saying, well, now you're my people. I want you to live like that. I want to live, help you to live out what it means to be my people. And this is where God gives them the Ten Commandments. Um, and God is saying, I want to show you how to be my people. But it's not only Ten Commandments. It's actually when you add them all up. It's over 600 commandments to how to be God's, God's people. And God's saying, if you will obey them, then you'll you represent me to the world around you. That's your purpose, is to show me to the world around you if you follow these commandments. Now, uh, remember, these laws uh, aren't the way that God's people become his people. They to then had a, it's more a response of his love. They had to live out what it means. So he's redeemed them before he gave them the law. And uh, we read here that the people say, yes, we agree. So great, God says, here's a covenant. You, I'll, be your, I'll be your God. You, my people, follow my ways. And they say, okay, we'll do that. We agree. Then we get, um, as, uh, uh, and uh, sorry, and then uh, they agree to do that. That's what they agree to do. 
uh, as many of you know, about uh, for the last 18 months, I decided to go off sugar. 18 months, sugar-free, <laughs> clean. Um, but uh, I can't remember if I remember, uh, uh, remind you of this, but just recently I went back on sugar again. And uh, it was actually triggered by a conversation I had with someone from 4pm, Esther Moran. She was talking to me and she said to me that uh, she had also decided to go off sugar. And, uh, but she said how boring it was. And it just triggered in my head. Yeah, it is so boring. It's so boring. It is not fun at all. What am I doing? Why have I done this to myself for the last 18 months? And I thought, I'm done with it. All the good foods have sugar in them. And it's way more exciting. I'm back on. I'm off the wagon. See you later, no sugar. Let me jump into you again. Anyway, and so what's interesting is that I thought to myself, look, I don't want to go too crazy even back on sugar because like, I haven't had it for a while. Let's just be slow with this and not go too mental. And, um, but I can't. It's like this drug that I just absolutely love. I love, my kids eat ice cream, I eat ice cream. Like, you know, I'm into it. Just yesterday, I even took my uh, two kids, Jet and Sav, uh, Indian Kate were, uh, were out somewhere, but I took Jet and Sav out for Teleballs. We just loved them. I'm thinking, these are the best things in the world. Where have they been all my life? We had these Nutellaballs that were amazing, they were yum. I just, I can't help it. I can't help but uh, uh, not go crazy on sugar. It's an impossible task for me to be restrained when it comes to sugar, it's almost impossible that I can do this. As I was saying, that God has said to his people, you be my people and you obey and you follow. And they say yes. But it's like this impossible task. They cannot do it. They cannot do it. They cannot live his ways and follow what he says to do. You know, I don't know if you know the story, but after they, God gives them the Ten Commandments just here, uh, Moses is up there getting the commandments and while Moses is up on the mountain, God's people, Israel, are there. They're waiting down uh, uh, on the ground at, at, at sea level. And while they're waiting there, we read in Exodus 32, they gather all the gold they have. And they melt it all down. And they say to Aaron, Aaron, Moses is gone. You can be our leader now. And what we want you to do is make a golden cow and we'll worship that as our God. Just, just after they've been given, they've been saved, after the Ten Commandments, and they've just said, we will follow you. They get a golden cow and they want to worship it as their God. So straight away, they've just broken the first two commandments. You should have, where God says, you should have no other God before me and you should not make yourself an idol. Straight away, broken. So it's this, this thing of them saying, we will obey, they can't do it. It's almost like it's an impossible task for them to obey and keep the covenant and to agree to be God's people. And really, as we see the rest of the Old Testament really play out, we see again and again that God's people cannot obey. They cannot do it. It's an impossible task for them to live out being the people of God. And then we finally get at the end of the Deuteronomy, Moses is there. And Moses looks at his people and says, look, I know you can't obey. I've seen what you've done. Your hearts are hardened. You guys cannot obey. You've proven that your hearts are too hard. And for you to obey, God is going to need to transform your heart, give you a new heart. So what's going to happen? If this is God's plan for humanity, they need to obey, to be his people. This is his rescue plan. For them to be a witness to the world, they can't do it. God needs to intervene again. And as we see, as you see later on, there's a part of the Bible which comes down here, which is called the prophets. I mean, read of people like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. And they reflect on Israel's disobedience. And they say for God's people to obey, then God will have to come by his spirit and give them a new heart. 
heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, where they will obey out of a, out of a delight rather than a duty. And these guys, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, also write about a coming king who will come and lead his people in the ways of God in obedience. And again, we, we see here that these prophets are pointing towards Jesus' coming. And Jesus is spoken about as the Messiah, as this king who will lead his people and show them how to live as God's people properly. And Jesus comes and he says, we do need a new heart. He says, yes, humanity can't obey. So Jesus says, I've come to solve that problem. And he says, Jesus actually says, I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to fulfill all the laws, the Ten Commandments. I've come to do it all. To do what God has said and called his people to do. I think this is, this is a really cool, cool part here, which I stick with me for a moment here. Remember God said, I made an agreement with, with, with humanity. I'll be your God, you my people. You live that out, you obey. Humanity can't. We can't keep our side of the agreement. We can't keep our side of the covenant. So what does God do? Well, he says, well, I'll send Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is both God and man. Fully God, fully man. And Jesus comes and fully obeys God. He fully obeys the laws. He never sins and he does all that God requires of humanity. And so Jesus, in effect, is keeping our side of the bargain. He's keeping our side of the covenant, our side of the agreement. And by doing that, he fulfills all the law, he says. And the cool thing is, for those who trust in Jesus and follow him, are united with him in his death, all his righteous living, all his righteous ways, his keeping of the law is transferred onto us. And so we too, through Jesus, keep the law. The covenant is kept. Jesus becomes our substitute there. But also, after Jesus' resurrection, he sends the Holy Spirit to those who follow him, and the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and allows us, enables us to obey to delight in following God's ways, not out of a duty or, or demand, but out of a, a delight in God and his purposes, in a response to what he has done for us. And now those who have transformed hearts look to Jesus as the way to live, as the model of how to live, as how to follow God's ways, delighting in him. And again, this story of the law, of the covenant, of the King Commandments, again, all point towards Jesus and him being fulfilling all of these all of these ways that God calls us to live. The law reveals our sin, how we can't obey and fall short of it, but it points towards Jesus being our saviour. It all points to him. But as we think about all this, and as I said at the start, if you think about this idea of being rescued and then living with a purpose, as followers of Jesus, this side of the cross, how do we fit this idea of his grace and our works? How do they fit together? How do they fit together these two things? How do we hold together God's rescuing us so it's by grace we've been saved, nothing we do, but also in our response to obeying God in obedience? How do they fit together in our thinking and what are we supposed to do? And I think there are two dangers I want to show to you here. At one end, we often have this thing that I want to classify as cheap grace. That is, I'm saved by grace. Yes, I contribute nothing to my salvation, saved only through Jesus' death on the cross for me as a substitution, and I'm going to heaven. And out of cheap grace will come this idea of that. The gospel is like a ticket to get out of jail free card. That I can get to heaven, I can use it whenever I want to. But I can continue to live how I want to live. So, uh, there's, 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 in this way of thinking, there's not a real living, active relationship with God through Christ. There's no real change in behavior or patterns or, or desires. And God's call, the Bible is more 
advice, an advice guide on to be not taken literally or nailed down too tightly or followed too closely because I'm saved by grace. I can do what I want a little bit. And he's there if, if we need him. I mean, the important thing is Jesus died for me, I'm going to heaven, and I know that. That's cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. And what is often so overlooked this way of thinking is Jesus' call to his followers to take their cross and follow him, to die to themselves, their wants and desires, and to live for him in his coming kingdom. What is forgotten is Ephesians 4, where, where Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What is forgotten is that Jesus becomes your saviour, but he also becomes your king and your lord. And you hand the keys of your life over to him and say, you're in charge now. Because I trust you. I live for you and your, and, your, and your desires in this world. This is the one danger of cheap grace at this end. Then you swing to the other end, the other pendulum swing, which is more, in a sense, legalism. And this is the danger where we can often feel loads of guilt and uncertainty. And the idea of my obedience, my efforts actually affect my eternal standing before God. And this idea of you're to keep working, keep, or keep obeying to make sure you're right with God. And if it's really pushed, if you really push this thinking to its degree, nth degree, it's the idea of that Jesus' death on the cross was not enough to take away my sin, to make me right with God. So Jesus gets you halfway there, like you know, 50, 60, 70% maybe, then your efforts and your obedience get you the rest of the way home. And the problem with this sort of thinking is that you're never sure, so assurance is never there. You're never sure that you're doing enough to please God. And you can quickly become, uh, come, uh, sorry, you can quickly feel quite guilty, misplaced guilt and shame. And you start to feel, and I, can, I feel this sometimes, that God is this disappointed father. That he's always like, oh, come on. Like, oh, Gabe, you just, again, you failed? And we start to sort of tell ourselves that. That God is never pleased with you. It's always like you're close, but just not good enough. And, you, and you've sinned again, and you keep failing. And you feel like you never live up to the standards that God sets. And so that affects how you relate with God or want to approach him. Because you don't want to go to a dad that's disappointed in you. You just want to kind of keep impressing him all the time with your obedience. But you just can't sometimes. And when you don't share Jesus with someone or... You struggle with a sin or you find it hard to read a Bible or find it hard to come to church. It just confirms what you feel that God thinks of you. And in this way of thinking, what is forgotten is Jesus' words on the cross where he says, it is finished. We've forgotten that we are not under law but under grace. And that we contribute nothing to our standing before God. We forget Romans 8 which says, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. And Paul lists them, heights, depth, angels, demons, death, sickness, famine, disease. Paul is saying there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. Not your failures. Not you sharing with someone, not, 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 not you sharing, not you not sharing with someone with Jesus. We forget John 10, which I love, where Jesus says, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. We forget that God demonstrated his love for us. In this, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we are loved as we are. Not as who we will be, or who we desire to be, but as we are. And this is the offer for all people, whether you know Jesus or not. And this is the amazing grace of the gospel.
And these are the two dangers, I think, when we think of the place of obedience and grace, how they fit together. Cheap grace, legalism. And we swing on this pendulum. We, we, it's a sliding scale. I'm sure none of us are the extreme ends, but we all go through these days where we feel either end of these. And, it, or, and how, we, how we view works and grace hugely affects how we relate to God and our walk with Him day by day. But I just want to encourage you to know the dangers, know the extremes, know what you're prone to, and then run to God and rest in His unchanging grace. And his love. Know that you are loved as you are. That you're a child of God. And it's nothing you have done, but it's what he has done. And that, that, is, that is who you are. We sing that song all the time. It's who we are. And you contribute nothing to your salvation because it is finished. It's by grace and grace alone. Rest in that fact. And then because of his love, in the power of his Holy Spirit, respond and live as a child. Live out your freedom. Live out who you are. Being free to reveal him as your Lord and your King. Letting, letting us have an overflow of his grace that you then go and show love to others. And that is the right order. When we get the order mixed up, that's when we make mistakes. We have to be responding to his love and his grace. That is the gospel and that is the Jesus we worship. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you so much for the story of Moses... For him being your faithful servant. I want to thank you for the story of the Exodus and how you redeemed and rescued a people and made them your own. How how, uh, we saw the Passover and how we see Jesus as our true Passover lamb. Lord, we want to thank you so much. We want to pray that we would really feel the effects of that we too were once lost and facing your, your judgment. But it's by grace and through the Passover Lamb, Jesus, we have been saved. We want to pray that we would see that we would live as your people with your purpose, responding to your grace. Help us not to get the order mixed up, Lord. Help us to see and to realize that we can rest in being your child first. There is no fear or guilt or shame. You have nailed the cross. You have paid it all. And Lord, help us to then to live out out of that freedom to be your child in this world, reflecting your goodness to all that we meet and inviting others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Amen.